0: Mike, thank you so much for joining the Green Element podcast. Um, I am really, really looking forward to speaking to you today because you've got such a breadth of experience within sustainability. And um, could you tell us a bit about yourself and
1: where you come from? Of course, Will. And I think breadth Brett of experience just tells you that I'm a little bit of an old man now, <laughs> sat in with my grey hair. But yeah, I've seen a lot, learned a lot, not always got things right, but um delighted to share some sort of time and observations with you. So. You know, my, my journey in life, I'm a Bradford boy, went to University in Sheffield, the chemistry degree, environmental consultancy. Um, joined MS in 2000, and it was, it was a really interesting point in life. I was recruited by the then CFO, Chief Financial Officer, later lady called Alison Reid. Seemed really odd that I was a very junior environment manager, very, very junior. i was being recruited by the CFO. And she says, Mike, look, you know, I've got personal passion for green issues in the way that most of people don't at the moment. Um, I've got you into the business. I want you to sort of drive um, us to be a greener business at Mark and Spencer. Uh, I'm afraid you haven't got a line managing. you haven't got a budget at the moment. But hey, get out my door and try and make something happen. And I, you know, I buddied up with a lad who'd been at M&S for a long, long time. Man and boy started there 16, 17 years of age. Now I call Roland Hill. And Roland was brilliant. He knew MS inside out. I knew environmental issues. Uh, we brought those two worlds together. And over a period of four or five years, we created this little, like, guerrilla army of people across the Met, Mark and Spencer who care passionately about green issues, operationally, supply chains, etc., people's um, human rights. And with time, you know, new leadership came in in Sir Stuart Rose, and Stuart turned around and said, I'm not happy with just being competent at this. You guys have maybe competent. I want to be a world leader. Mark and Spencer about world leadership and retail get out of my office, you've got 100 days to work out what world leadership and corporate responsibility means or you're looking for a new job. And if anybody who knew Stuart Rose, there's lots of Anglo-Saxon that surrounded that sort of get on with it kind of message, which was brilliant. It was energetic, it was passionate, he wanted change. And that's where Plan A, because there's no Plan B for the one planet we've got, emerged. Um, six or seven of us sort of developed it very, very rapidly, went through 17 iterations in 100 days, launched early 2007. And in terms of the context of the conversation now, 13 years on, I look back at that and think Marks and Spencer put in place a really firm foundation for social environmental issues. It had targets on salt reduction, fat reduction, on packaging, on human rights, and working with farmers, on animal welfare, on nascently and climate change at the time, on water issues, on fish sourcing, on wood sourcing, you name it, M&S had a position. And that enabled us just to get control on all this swirling noise of NGOs and competitor activities because m and competitors, the big supermarkets in particular, have always been very good at this. I think collectively the UK uh, food retail sector is one of the most interesting in the world when it comes to sustainability. And we'll come back to that in, in a little bit. And then what we did with, with plan A is we constantly updated it. So there's always a temptation when you've launched a nice plan and everybody's got well done, nice round of applause for, for that m For you all to sit back and think, job done. And actually, what's driven me, Gray, and um, you know, lots of other good people at MS worked very, really hard with me was to actually implement it and make it stick, turn it from words on paper into action on the ground. And that's where the business really showed its brilliant stripes at MS. It really stepped forward and said, you know, marketplace is challenging. It's always been tough at MS in terms of economic performance. But this is what we stand for. It's the right thing to do for 32 million customers. We'll never be able to do everything we want to do because of economic constraints, but we'll do it. And then just to finish off this this sort of part of the conversation, we evolved it from this firm foundation where you start with 100 commitments, to integrating into the business, so everybody did it as part of their job. The third phase then was to build partnerships with other organisations, because you can never change the world's palm oil industry on your own, you had to work with Archie. The fourth phase then was to start to engage your customers in sustainable change. Launching, for example, a plant based um, range of food called Plant Kitchen, 60 brilliant uh, products, alternative to meat, flew off the shelves. So you're starting to have a conversation with your customer about a different form of consumption. And then the fifth thing that lies ahead is genuine sustainable business models. And again, we've, we've, we saw this morning an announcement from Tesco's and TerraCycle launching something called Loop, which will deliver branded goods to your doorstep in reusable containers rather than plastic that you've used once and throw away. Constantly use bring refills to your house so you can keep reusing. That's the kind of future that we need. Small scale for now, but could be huge in the future. So that's my journey. Really interesting, isn't it? And
0: I think that um, with your initial um, interaction, you know, your initial job with MS and the fact that the CFO was behind hiring you, it really does just cement in that you really need to have senior management to buy into something and look at where you were able to take um, sustainability in an organisation as big as m and purely because you
1: had the backing of senior management. Yeah, and, and, and again, one of, the, one of the stories that's rarely told about m and is that Plan A was evolved through three different chief executives. So Stuart Rose, Mark Bollard, and now Steve Rowe. And all three of them backed Plan A to the hills, but in different ways. So Stuart wanted to be, have a bold, ambitious plan that redefined retail globally, corporate responsibility, absolute leadership. Mark said, brilliant, but I want to build on that by really fo- focusing the M&S on the m and partnership. So being at the heart of these global and sector alliances to tackle deforestation or human rights or food waste or plastics, because we can't solve it all on our own. And then Steve came in and said, This has to be my product. It has to be relevant to our customers. It has to be connected with the stores and the communities that we serve. And Steve iterated it again. But it was always Plan A. And I think that the beauty of that, it shows you have to be flexible. You have to be agile. Because as I mentioned, when you and I were just having a little warm up chat, Will, nothing stands still. And even looking back just 13 years now, Plan A, which was groundbreaking of its time, just looks like a beginner's. First rung on the ladder, but it was a necessary first rung on the ladder for you to climb towards a truly sustainable business in the future.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd love to explore um, the partnerships and um, how you worked with um, your suppliers, I'm assuming, and yeah. your clients. I would imagine that the people who shop at M&S were also a part of the whole overall stakeholder um, engagement piece. Yeah. I mean, what you know, what what drove um, you and the organisation, or you know, what were the drivers around it? And
1: um... so, so, so let's very quickly look at three types of partnership. One, the, firstly, suppliers. So the M&S supply chain were brilliant on this. There's always a degree of compliance. You know, we have human rights expectations, and again, what we've seen with you know all Boohoo's problems in Leicester in, in, in clothing factories in the last year. It says human rights are t- tough to manage. The m and team managed it from the beginning and managed it well in partnership with good suppliers. But one example from the, what the food, the food business did, um, it, several years ago, it brought in this concept of a bronze silver gold ladder for its suppliers to improve. So every time you, you stepped up and you followed this, the rungs on this ladder, um, developed by the food team, you became more sustainable. used less energy, you created less waste, you motivated your people through better sort of people um, employment practices. In doing that, you became a better business. You became leaner, you became more efficient, better quality, more innovative, um, low cost based. All these things help you improve your business. So you're becoming more sustainable socially, environmentally, but also economically as well. Mm. You went from bronze, you went to silver, you went to gold, um, and you moved to the supply chain. So you're constantly looking for that double win good for planet and people, but also good for the bottom line as well. Mm. And, that, and what the MS Food team did really well was build a support infrastructure around that, a series of webinars, events, case studies. So people working with the huge pressure in, in, in supply chains could see, ah, that's how you run a chicken factory better or a farm better mm. or a fruit juice factory better. So there's this constant exchange of knowledge and experience. So that's one example of partnership. The second example of partnership is is then just recognising that MS turns over £10 billion a year, big business. Walmart turns over 25 times more than that. <laughs> so, little old M&S was not going to change the world of. Let's use an example of palm oil. Palm oil present in about twenty-five percent of food products and invisible ingredient to most people. hugely destructive in terms of, of loss of rainforest in Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Malaysia, and, and the other problems. M&S was using a few thousand tonnes in eight hundred different products. It was a liquid commodity that was seven stages in the supply chain back from M&S. So, the M&S's ability to leverage change infinitesimal. But if m and stood next to Pepsi, Coke, Nestle, Unilever, Coca-Cola, um, Walmart, Tesco's, Carrefour, suddenly there was several, not m and turning over £10 billion a year, but businesses between them turning over several trillion dollars a year between them, asking for change. Now, even that sort of army of positive coalition for change from the marketplace has found it hard to drive the change that we need, but it has made so much more strides than little old m and on its own. So it worked within the, the overall umbrella of the Consumer Goods Forum. So bring together the world's biggest food and drink, retailers and brands to work together. So that's the second type of partnership that we need. You need partnership with your own supply chain, but you need partnership with everybody else as well. And then the third type of partnership was with customers. There's 32 million people shopped shop with M&S. And market research found about 10% of them were passionately green. They so would sit on this conversation now and would be egging you and I on to do even more. 35 percent of people like green really interested in these issues really concerned about climate change and waste and pollution and human rights abuses but they find it difficult they don't want to give up um, lifestyle pay more for products because they're greener but if you can find a way to provide them with great products at great prices that are fundamentally more sustainable they're with you and we'll come back to them 35 percent a second group of 35 percent of people very passionate about the future in fact very worried about the future um Utterly through the lens of locality, neighbourhood. Born in Glasgow, live in Glasgow, die in Glasgow, what's anybody doing for Glasgow? Before you start shaving rainforests on other side of the world, what are you doing for Glasgow? And then the fourth group, 20%, not really engaged. And even in, a, in Britain, a relatively wealthy country, that's the poorest sections of society who are just saying, I've got to focus on getting through this week, and you have to sort of respect that. But add those three other groups together, you've got 80% of com- citizens who are interested in these issues. You just need to find a different way of tapping in with them. The 10% who are passionately green want to hear from big business that we recognise as a climate crisis, biodiversity crisis, inequality crisis, wellbeing crisis. And we're not willing just to iterate things to be slightly better each year, but fundamentally leap into this different place. Again, I use the example of um, closed-loop deliveries of of branded goods to your doorstep. It's the shift to electric cars. It's the shift in diet, to plant-based, and ultimately lab-grown. It's radical shifts that's what the 10% want the 35% really interesting because this group of the swing voters they're saying I want to consume fundamentally differently you have to meet in the middle I want to be able to have good holidays wear stylish clothing eat great food great experiences get around uh, and the 10% who would deep green might challenge that but the 35% know. I, I want a good life I want you to find a way Mark & Spencer or Nestle or Tesco to square the circle and give them great products at great prices, a great service, but fundamentally more sustainable. And I'll just pick a few examples of products out that are doing that at the moment. So if you think what Allbirds are doing, Allbirds trainers, now, a brilliant social environmental story, fundamentally more sustainable than the average trainer out there. But you know what? It's a stylish shoe at a pretty good price point. That for a man of my age is sort of the comfy shoe I've worn in my life. Mm. So when it comes to defining what the success success looked like, it's that to me is the all-good trainer. Great price, great looks, great feel, and it's fundamentally more sustainable. That's mm. what brings the 35% with us. And then the 35% who are sort of driven by locality and neighbourhood. You know, for Marks and Spencer with a you know, thousand shops around the British Isles and all the other supermarkets as well work hard on this. The ability to do something useful on the local scale was incredibly important. So M&S had great charity partnerships on a national scale with Breast for Breast Cancer. Absolutely made sense. m and sells a third of all the bras in the UK. Core customers a woman forty plus. Core employee women forty plus. Number one premature killer for them: breast cancer. So QED, you have a national relationship on tackling breast cancer. Brilliant. Never stop that. But M&S also had to make sure that each of its individual stores from Exeter to Bristol, through Birmingham, through Bradford, up through Newcastle to Glasgow, you know, all the way across the British Isles. each local store was making a difference to its local communities and customers could feel that, whether it was a beach clean, whether it was donating clothing to local um, uh, Oxham charity shop, all the time that MS was l- useful to your locality. So partnerships across your own supply chain, across the industry and with your customers, I can
0: Brilliant, isn't it? Because I would imagine that many people listening to the podcast um, are within partnerships, um, possibly within the food um, chain or supermarket chain, or have their own partnerships with other organizations. And I think there's a massive learning curve through that, isn't it? And listening to you,
1: it's collaboration. It's- and, uh, oh, uh, Will, can I just hop in very briefly there yeah. to say? That seems really self-evident to us, but I grew up a man in my 50s with a cadre of business leaders who were used to just winning on their own. Mm. You're the chief executive of your company. Your job is to beat everybody else, not to collaborate with them. So there's had to be a huge mindset shift in this sort of group of cadre of traditional leaders to say, one day you're competing, one day you're collaborating. Mm. And you have to be able to move smoothly and seamlessly between those two worlds. At the Consumer Goods Forum, you're bringing together Coke and Pepsi, mm. Unilever and Nestle, Tesco's and Walmart, huge competitors. And you always have the lawyer in the room to make sure the right words were said in the right way. <laughs> but mindset wise, these businesses have spent decades trying to beat each other. And now so we're still trying to win in the marketplace, but behind the scenes, collaborate. Yeah. Got to share. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I, think, um, I think you'll see. I think sustainability is probably was probably and is probably the first pure collaborative approach that organisations have. Because I know that, um, say, Puma, Adidas, um, Patagonia, North Base and a group of other companies have been sitting together for years. They never discuss the cost and price of their products. They never talk about um stuff that's very unique to themselves and also their usp but i do know that they talk sustainably we're going to be we're bringing out this new cotton that uses much less water we're able to because it's it's improving sustainability within each of the organizations because that's what their core goal is and i and you would not have heard that 20 years ago
1: yeah, and two other practical examples. I think this week the Dutch competition authorities have turned around and said, we recognise in this world of sustainable partnership that we're going to have to look at competition law. So the laws that governed how business were kept apart in the 20th century, absolutely right. You don't want sort of price gouging in, in the marketplace. But in the 21st century, we're facing to a climate crisis, a plastics pollution crisis. We need to be more sophisticated. So it'll be interesting to see what the, 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 the Dutch discover there as well. And, and then you've, you've also got to recognise that a lot of the challenges that we all face are systemic. It's not, it's not about Marks and Spencer. Marks and Spencer uses a lot of lorries, lots of lorries for logistics, using diesel. Decarbonising heavy goods vehicles is difficult. It's not like electric cars, which you can see a pathway to quite rapidly. Heavy, heavy goods vehicles are difficult to do. There's no point M&S trying to come up with a solution and Tesco's coming up with a solution and Sainsbury's and everybody else a different one. You need one approach where everybody's using a shared infrastructure, you can roll out rapidly, drive down the costs because it goes to scale rapidly. You need collaboration on things like a price on carbon. We desperately need a price on carbon across the economy. Mm. Now, for whatever reasons, politicians, for some good reasons, some less so, are nervous about price on carbon. You need all the businesses lined up together to say, we would welcome one now in terms of paying if we pay carbon tax we want to pay less tax over here on the positive thing that we do for society but we should all pay a price on carbon so you need these collective voices both in terms of technology shifts uh, taxation shifts and infrastructure shifts if we're going to have a stable future because we haven't got time on our side we've got 10 years to really start to bend the arc in the right direction that's all 10 years yeah
0: yeah yeah and i think that's Slightly worrying. Um but the when so you left in two thousand thirteen and since then you have been helping many different organizations uh to become sustainable. What do you see as a really um have you have you seen any kind of common themes through helping these organizations? Are there any um is there any Anything you can think of that could help?
1: And uh, just a tiny bit of clarification. Will. I left last year, 2019, so, about, so I've been freelancing for oh, 12 sorry. months. I apologise. In 12 months, I've learned so much and it's been a very humbling experience having been 19 years in the same business. And I, and, I, and I will shrink my learning down to the following. I ask three questions in any boardroom, big or small, any industrial sector. Why are you doing sustainability? What are you committing to do? How are you integrating into your business? So, so the why is the strategy. And that's very much saying what are your customer's saying, what society's saying, what's the regulator saying, what your investor's saying, what your, what your competitor's doing, what marketplace disruptor's doing. How do you respond as a business with the right strategy to become more sustainable so you can survive, be future-proof and prosper in a very different marketplace in the future? So that's the boardroom conversation about strategy. The second conversation about the what is where most people rush too quickly. So the what is a science-based target on climate change. It's human rights audits, it's water targets, it's energy targets. They're the bread and butter. They're the engine room of sustainable change. You need them. But only once you've worked out the why, the strategy, can you work out truly what you need to commit to do. So the what is is not just, I've got a science-based target. It is then the governance system that you will use to actually implement it, hold yourself to account internally for delivering it, and how you report to the outside world on your progress. This is working, this isn't working. And again, M&S had a really good what system, the Plan A machine, 100 commitments, reporting every year, independently assured, was a vital component. And then the third question this is one that every business, big and small, tends to avoid, which is how do I integrate it? How do I turn it from being a set of Words that are signed off in a boardroom, and everybody, everybody forgets, into the beating heart of how the business does business. How do you work with your suppliers? The way that we just talked about that bronze, silver, gold ladder for feminist food suppliers. How do you work with your customers? Again, we've used the example of, of greener light green products, and also localization of, of business, difference in neighborhoods. How do you work in partnership with other organisations to spread the burden of change? We talked about the Consumer Goods Forum and as an example so how do you turn it into not just words on paper but how you do business every day in every aspect of what you do so the why the what the how i don't care whether i'm talking to a technology company a food company a drinks company um, a, a legal company a banking company whether it's turning over 10 billion a year or you know 10,000 pound a year it is the same three questions that you ask
0: and it's funny look, listening to um, what you did in those early days and picking up um, someone to speak to or, or work with Ron who had what you said 16 17 years he'd been working at M&S. i mean it's it's kind of it's just brilliant that you did that and i it, it, it was that in was that in hindsight oh that was good or did you did you Oh, I've learned that, and this is what you should be doing, or just, just out of curiosity, really, because it's such a good way of incorporating um, sustainability and a culture within an organisation.
1: Yeah, and, and the story of me working with Roland was an important one, because Roland had been there 20 years. He knew Mark was spent it inside out. Mm. I didn't. Yeah. So I could walk in with all this environmental knowledge, lifecycle assessments mm. and targets and, and this, but unless you truly understood M and S, you didn't know how to make it stick, so that the words on paper became a reality for thousands of store managers, supply chain managers, marketeers, finance people, product designers. All the all these people had to be energized to get behind what we're doing, mm. and Roland was absolutely brilliant and said, "Yeah, Mike, you know, nice theory, but that's not going to work here because it's <laughs> <is> the culture." <laughs> so, see, see, so we were really good partnership. Mm. I, I I brought that sort of deep scientific external knowledge, stakeholders and science and sustainability. Roland knew a lot of that already, but he really, really, really knew Martin Spencer. And yeah. without him, I wouldn't have got to where we got to with, with Plan A. Yeah.
0: It, it's, yeah. And I think that's, and that whole how is a part of Roland and yours um, journey, isn't it? It's working it through and, incorporating it in
1: so what are your plans now you've um yeah so so, so i'm really enjoying myself after doing 19 years at one business which seems a crazy amount of time <laughs> goodness um and loved it to bits i had such a good time at my spent you know i got gray hair on my head for a reason it's not just old age it was tough at times but loved it to bits. brilliant brilliant business and people um but came out last summer um, and I deliberately said that having been in one place for 19 years, I want to work across the economy for at least 12 months. So I'm freelancing at the moment. I'm working, say, in property companies, technology companies, fast-moving consumer goods, businesses, a couple of fintech startups, COGO and Climate, 8 who are really trying to energise people to make their own decisions sustainably on daily expenditure, COGO, or long-term investment, Climate. So for, for me, the corporate boy, having spent all my time in suits in the big business, been brilliant to work with startups, um, fast moving, innovative, agile, really testing the marketplace um, for these new approaches. Um, And also then working with Think Tank, uh, Blueprint for Better Business, it's really trying to sort of bring all this thinking together into a template or a roadmap by which any big business can go on the journey from dealing with corporate social responsibility, social environmental issues on the edge of the business at least. To putting it the beating heart of it, everything you do, and blueprints a bit, bit brilliant platform for that. So that sheer diversity is is brilliant because I'm I'm just I'm a junkie for knowledge and learning. That's why mm-hmm. I do so much on social media. I do, I'm, yeah, you I do can know- see you can stuff.
0: definitely see that from the articles <laughs> you post on LinkedIn. <laughs> it, it,
1: it, it just goes to show that an old man can learn new tricks. Ish, um, but, but quite fun. But I, 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 I'm. I'm it's, it's weird because I, I'm an eternal optimist, and I've got a glass of blackcurrant juice here, and it's—I'm showing it to Will, and it's got—it's ten percent full. And I guess I'm a ten percent full guy, even even though I know, as a scientist, the world is burning, and it literally is burning We're destroying biodiversity. We're reaping all kinds of existential risks to the planet. I get up every morning believing that we can we can solve it, and and that's not that's not for everybody. There's a lot of good people out there who who feel the tragedy of what we're doing to this planet and mm. society. I do in, in, in many ways, but I'm just this incredible optimist that ingenuity and drive and innovation can solve this. Um, and that's what I bring, I, I bring to every, working with every one of my clients. It's just, just this sense of not only, yes, we can solve this problem, but in doing it, we can make your business better. Because one of the things we did at m and with Plan A we also tackled wider cultural challenges that the business had. It was quite an insular business, m and so Plan A forced the business to look out. Quite risk-averse. Plan A was a huge risk. So it was a huge brick in the, in the pond of, of global retail. m was, was back where it needed to be, being a, a real leader. It joined the business up. You know, The food business and the clothing business had been traditionally quite siloed. Plan A brought everybody together to work horizontally across the business. So I'm a great believer as well that sustainability is not just better for the planet and society around you, better for you as a business in terms of your culture, your structures, um, your product mix, your cost base. You took £750 million net out of the market expense cost base over a period of 10 years with Plan A, less waste, less energy. And a lot of those savings that we made would not have been identified on their own because they are all individually small. And you need a plan A to energise the whole business to go looking under the you know, sort of proverbial mattress and sofa for them all. So a guy in a Barnsley store rang, rang us up and said, I'm printing this coloured document out every morning with sales figures for Barnsley store on every day. 60, 70 pages. Never use it. Throw it straight in the bin because I use another document. over here." So we looked into it. And every M&S store in Britain was printing this document out in 2007. Stop doing it overnight. You save 138 grand. From just, <laughs> just turning off a document that no one was using, just wasting leopardy's time printing it out, so it was, it, and it was thousands of savings like that, lots of good people just spotting the local opportunities to make mm. savings that I in the center that the, the central team could never see. Yeah. But what plan A did it energized people to look for those benefits. Mm. so yeah, fundamentally, there is a business case out there. Mm. That you can reap. And it becomes actually the business case, and it's now even more existential because we're now shifting from making businesses less bad to fundamental shifts in your product mix. And again, we've talked about the shift from diesel to electric, coal to wind, uh, meat based to plant based. If as a business you miss those shifts, you're out of business. Mm. You're not relevant in the marketplace. And that's why I think investors are starting to get a lot more interested now. They used to look at this as a very much a reputational mm. issue. You might embarrass me back because you're in a sweatshop. Actually, now it's my goodness, so you're selling, you're trying to sell clothing, but everybody's buying them off a resale platform. You've got a business model. Why am I investing in you? You're entirely selling, you just sell meat, but more and more people are looking for a plant-based alternative. Why are you selling both? Yes. So now investors are starting to understand these existential risks of being on the wrong side of these great big shifts in the marketplace. And that's what shapes the next decade. You talked um, briefly about
0: the food Food industry supermarkets in the UK, and you said that the UK is leading in this area. Can we could, could we explore that and um, yeah, understand more definitely. what you mean by that, please?
1: Yeah, so 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 let me just list them out because when I was growing up and at, at launch planet m and this was a hugely competitive issue. Marks and Spencer wanted to be better than Sainsbury's, the Co-op. It wanted better from Tesco's, Morrison's, now Aldi, Lidl, you know, Waitrose, the Co-op. You name them. And Iceland, so the Big Ten. Actually, now I've learned a huge amount of respect for all those Big Ten companies. They're all doing a huge amount in different ways, and, it, and everybody's got a slightly different business model. MS's business model, 98% private label, you know, quite high end, it's all about quality. So, what what we were doing with sustainability was broadening the definition of quality at MS. What other brands have done is they've very much used it uh, as a way of connecting with their customers in terms of their quality. Uh, Credentials or their local credentials. So the co op have always been brilliant at saying each co op store is really well connected with its local community. The co op lost its way for decades way back when it's refound really itself brilliantly now, really well connected back with, with the marketplace. Tesco is now really doing good stuff in terms of um, food waste reduction and not just in terms of their own oh, no, actual operations, but leading a, a global coalition. Go back to this concept of coalitions let's bring together the world's biggest food and drink companies to work together systemically on food waste issues. And their you know, chief executive at the moment, Dave Lewis, has done a brilliant personal job at driving a global coalition for change. So Tesco's fantastic stuff. Waitrose have been innovating in terms of these install refill systems where you can come back and fill up your rice or your sugar or your coffee or your pasta. Rather than walking out with single-use plastic, you come with your own container, you fill it up, you buy it, you take it back, you reuse your container. So wherever I look, there's opportunity. And, and again, people can be a little bit sniffy sometimes about the Aldi's and the littles, and the the, the, as the Walmarts, you know, it's cheap food for, for, for people on a budget, but they don't care about sustainability. Yes, they do. And I think one of the great opportunities of the next decade is for people, to, for businesses to democratise sustainable living. So in a way that it felt a very middle-class thing there just for people with you know, reasonable incomes, certain uh, educational background absolutely not it has to be made real and relevant for millions of people across a whole strata of not just british society but global society and the value retailers are doing a good job at that already and will do even more in the future so wherever you look across the uk marketplace from the the m&s ocado waitrose end of it to the aldi littles as the morrisons tesco's saying somewhere in the middle waitrose iceland I just see collective good performance. What I don't, I, and I don't see that in many of the sectors around the world. In, the other, in other geographies and other sectors, I tend to see one or two absolute leaders then a huge gap down to everybody else. Mm. But the UK food supermarkets, and let, let, let's also take our hat off here to the UK NGO community, who've been a, a relentless and ceaseless holder to account of the, of, the, of the supermarket sector, driving them to be better. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that working in tandem, the, the, the NGO community spurring voluntary action, because not much of this has been driven by rule of law, and then the retailers responding collectively have been very, very powerful. Having said all that, at most, the UK food retail sector is 20% sustainable, at most. It's still using too much plastic, it's, it's sourcing raw materials um, in a way that's bad for biodiversity, it's bad for climate, It's inefficient. Generates too much food waste, there's too much human rights abuse in supply chains. That is one of the best sectors in the world. And I'm saying it's roughly 20% sustainable. To become 100% sustainable, or at least close to it, this is where you need the radical shifts in business model. And I talked about the waitress refill systems. I've talked very briefly about this new loop system that's coming out to deliver branded goods to your home to refillable containers. I talked about plant based um, food ranges rather than meat based. It is a step change in these new business models, new product services and ways of getting products to people that will get you from 20% to 60 to 70 to 80% a step. And we need to do that quickly in the next 10 years.
0: And <laughs> I kind of know what you want to answer this. Do you think that'll happen?
1: <laughs> Everything's 10% full. <laughs> uh, no, I, you, you know what? So, so, so look, let, 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 let's, let's do, answer that in two ways. We're, we're we are very close to 1.5 degrees warming mm. and in the next decade a single year might touch 1.5 degrees warming there's probably 25 percent chance of that happening on a single year and it might not hold there but within 10 15 years or 20 years 1.5 will become the, the norm across the planet 1.5 is going to have huge impact on human life on livelihoods and the economy let's be really clear about that but we're going to Pile through 1.5. On the current structure, we're heading, I think, for 2.8 to 3.2. Warming. Wow, that is scary numbers. I don't think we're going to get to 5 or 6, which was where we might thought we might get to 20 years ago. But 2.8 to 3.2 degrees of warming. Catastrophic for society and the economy in ways that we've never imagined. Do I think overnight that everybody's going to wake up, smell the coffee, and... Turn the taps off of global greenhouse greenhouse emissions, and we're suddenly going to stop at one point five. No, we're not. We're going through one point five, and that's a tragedy. And I'll do everything I can as an individual to stop us going through one point five. But we will. We will. What I believe is that through collective accelerated action in the next decade, you can bend us away from hitting three degrees. Mm. You might be able to hold it around two, two, or two two degrees of warming, which, again, would have huge impacts on society and the economy, but we can do it. And, again, I think we've seen this during COVID. We've stopped the entire global economy during COVID, just switched everything off, and global emissions have come down 7% across mm. 2020, We're projected to down by 7%. We need to do that every single blinking year yeah. into the future mm. to hit it. To even remotely some chance of hit the two degree world that's the enormity of the challenge yeah but i break the elef- that, so that's the that's the elephant in the room i then break down the elephant in the way that you can eat it to say look at the moment the uk food retailers are collectively showing a pathway that very few other sectors of any type in the world are collectively showing which is the ability to recognize that problem they have in place plans in place to drive the change that we need And we'll accelerate that. So the British Retail Consortium that represents most of the UK retailers, not all of them, has announced last week that it's bringing 20 UK retailers together, not just foods but others, to come up with a collective net zero pathway. Uh, We're going to develop it over the next few months. It is so important that sectors step forward collaboratively and say systemically we need to reduce our emissions the way that none of us individually can to try and hold us within this two degrees world. Is that true, net zero? Real net zero? So it's got the word net in it for a reason. There will never be absolute zero in any economy. There will always be some form of hopefully minimal offset at the end of it. And again, I think the the food sector is really interesting because its ability to lock up carbon in well-managed soil and ecosystems and reforestation is such a powerful pathway to true net zero. Mm. Um, So I think the food sector will be tremendously innovative um, in terms of both reducing its emissions but also then leading the way in terms of eco, natural, natural-based solutions, MBS, to lock up carbon. So we get net zero. And other sectors, let's just use the example of, of airlines, will be buying into the solutions that the food industry have. And actually, I, th- I, I think farmers in general, and retailers and brands in the food sector will make a lot of money in the future by managing carbon storage solutions for other sectors that can't decarbonise at the same rate.
0: That's really, yeah, that's really, it's a lot to do. It's an awful lot
1: to do. Um, it, is, it, is, it is, Will, and, you know, I, I, I'm not immune to moments of, of dread and fear. Hmm. Four o'clock in the morning, laying in bed thinking, what the hell? Um, but you know what? I let that pass and I get up at six in the morning and think, you know, I'm now going to march in today with that weight on my shoulders, but positively trying to do yeah. as much as I possibly can about
0: it. I don't and think you have I'm, to. And I think you have to. I, um, I mean, you've been in this industry the same as, same amount of time as me, and I think that um, the amount of conversations that you have with people that you don't necessarily know on networking events and stuff, and you start talking about it, and it's it's really interesting. I would say I would say seven, eight times out of ten, you, the kind of the conversations go negative slightly and then move into positive going actually this is what we can do this is this is how we can do it and it very rarely you very rarely go oh this is awful all oh, the world is going to end do you? it's really interesting and it's really quite nice to see that people in this industry really do just go right get up in the morning let's get
1: on yeah. let's move this forwards but but let's use the example of the finance sector so for for 20 years or so, i was doing planning MS. The finance community investors were very limited engagement, not just with market Spencer, but any business in terms of sustainability. Suddenly, the last couple of years, this concept of ESG, environmental, social and governance, has come to the fore. And Investors are starting to look at their portfolio, predominantly through the lens of risk. So what is the risk of me having my investment You know, in Boohoo Factory in Leicester, the share price has come down by 40% in a couple of weeks as, as people have re- reflected on the, the reputational damage and the damage to their potential damage to their sales of that. So investors are starting to think about risk in the way that they should have been a decade ago, but they didn't, we are where we are. Now what they need to do is do two things. One is to apply ESG principles every day consistently to all their investments and benchmark their investments and their portfolios in terms of risk. Don't stop there start to understand, the, and this is what really turns bankers and financiers and and any capitalists on, what's the opportunity to grow new business models out of the ashes of today's economy, COVID ashes and climate ashes. And, you know, I'd use the example of all birds. We could have talked about Tesla. We could have talked about Impossible Meats. There are thousands of new startups emerging who have at the heart of their their basic principles more sustainable ways of living their life. But they'll also make lots of money, many of them. Now, that also, you know, we shouldn't shy away from every environmental step forward we've ever taken. It always brings a secondary negative effect. So we've piled out of hydrogenated vegetables out of food 20 years ago because they're bad for the human heart. Where do we rush to palm oil so we chop down the rainforest? We jumped out of petrol cars into diesel cars because we thought we'd get more miles per gallon, but we caused, caused an air pollution crisis in cities. We jumped out of CFCs in refrigerants because of the the ozone layer. We ended up with HFCs, which were rotten for greenhouse gas, gas emissions. Obviously, we get piling to electric cars. What do we do with the batteries? What, where do you get the lithium and cobalt for the, for the batteries? You have to think about that. So there are a series of consequences that will come from every step that we take into the future. And again, investors need to be investing with open eyes to say, I want to back, back a new future, a positive, sustainable one but also understand the risks of the shifts that come. And I fear that too many investors still have got a herd mentality that just drifting along without truly understanding both risk and opportunity. And, you know, we're going to see a shakeout in the finance system. A lot of today's financial system, as much as the fossil industries, won't survive the next decade because it doesn't truly understand the risk and opportunity of sustainable change, which will happen very quickly.
0: And I think, I think we're already seeing that change in um, the financial industry and I think it's leaders like Alison Rose at RBS who yeah. I know and I know she truly does believe in sustainability and she knows that it's actually the full, that that's where RBS needs to go. It's yeah. it's clearly obvious talking to her that that's what's... It, a lot, but I hear then um, in conversations that many of the other banks are actually looking at similar... Um,
1: Things as well, so yeah. And what you ended up, and again, let's just use Alison Rose as an example. She's a brilliant leader, and she'll shake up that organisation. And in the way that Mark dispensed with Plan A thirteen years ago, to a degree, and I'm not going to sort of overclaim here, but to a degree, shook up the UK retail space. And then everybody else responded to Plan A with their own versions of it. I think what Alison Rose will do with with NatWest is shake up the banking community, and everybody will respond. by the end of the 2020s, I hope we're describing the UK financial sector as a whole in the way that I've just given some credit to the UK food supermarket sector as a whole being a global exemplar of climate change. Um, so, so, the, but the other thing, let's just quickly look at the accelerators because we can be a little bit gloomy about where we are. One of the things I'm taking from COVID is that the, the looming intergenerational crisis that we've got. So, you and I are gentlemen of a certain age. You look at what we're passing as a settlement to anybody under forty now. Gig economy. So you and I grew up in a world of reasonable career stability. Reasonable. We grew up in a world with rising house prices. Now we've got generation rent. We grew up in a time of, you know, to a degree, pension certainty. You know where you'll be in twenty or thirty years' time, what income you might have. No pension certainty now. I'm giving you all the cost of. The um, COVID bailout, because the young people have locked themselves away to protect all the people. Right thing to do, but it has a cost. I'm giving you a climate crisis. I'm giving you a fractured global institutional system with the rise of popularism. I'm giving you a bit of a mess. And if I was now under 40, and certainly between 16 and 25, I'd be pushing our generation out of the way and saying, we're taking over. Um, You're stuffing up our future at a very quick rate. So I think the 2020s will see... A rapid rise of a young generation saying, "You're burning the planet, guys. Get out of the way." And I stress yep. the word "guys" because it's white men with grey hair like me. Mm. They've got us where we've got. We are, we are where we are. Mm. So there's going to be an generation. The other thing I just want to say is, an accelerator is technology. So we're stepping into the fourth industrial revolution now. Whether it's AI, big data, machine learning, drones, uh, remote sensors, three D printing, genomics, wherever we look, there is a plethora of new technologies now huge risks associated with the surveillance society. What does business do with all that data? Who's spying on who? But also huge solutions. So if you want to track and trace billions of individual items through global supply chains, to make sure they haven't got dodgy Carmel in them. You need satellites, you need centers, sensors, you need AI, you need big data to crunch all the different data points to track and trace. And we're literally at a crossroads in terms of what I call either tech for bad or tech for good. And We as, um, I've got to seize the positive opportunities of technology to create a sustainable future very, very quickly. Yeah. So yeah. that intergenerational shift and that technology shift, I think, says there will be an acceleration in the next three or four years that none of us are prepared for in terms mm-hmm. of sustainable change. Exciting.
0: Um, um, I'm conscious of the time, and actually I really want to carry on talking to you, but I know that we've, we do set it out that it's 30 to 40 minutes, because I think that's uh, right for people to listening. but um maybe we could carry on another time but thank you um so much for yeah just talking to me and talking to us at green element podcast because it's been so interesting listening to you and wh- where you
1: see us going um thank you uh, and will thank you for the kind invitation to join you and i'll just say in 30 seconds flat to, to all the listeners i don't care what age you are what job description you have where whereabouts in the world you are you can be a positive agent for change I want us all to feel the heat, literally the heat on our, on our feet that says we have to change. We should all be worried about what the trajectory will be on. I also want you to be passionate and positive about your ability to lead change in your neighbourhood, through mm-hmm. products, through services, through linkages, community groups, through mm-hmm. conversations on social media, through innovation. You can be that cadre for change. That's what you need to be. So yeah. well, thank you very much yeah. for you, much, yeah. to joining. Brilliant. Cheers, Mike. Thank you. Thank you
0: today we've got mike barry on the um podcast um i was really excited before the podcast talking to mike and um quite rightly so it was a really cool conversation about what he did integrating sustainability into MS, what ramifications that has and the um i don't know these thoughts of what we can do in organizations and how we can progress and become more sustainable and where um, he sees the future um, in the UK and the world with regards to um, climate change. I hope you enjoy the podcast.